we have returned to the age of kings. It's been a while, and so we need to take this time at the front end to remind ourselves where we are in God's redemptive story. God had made promises to the patriarchs that he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And he has delivered on all of those promises. He brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, in the Exodus, and into the promised land. Sure, there was a 40-year detour, but that was on the people, not on God. They had disobeyed him and reaped the fruit of their disobedience. At any rate, through Joshua, God had brought his people into the land through the conquest. And last we checked, when we left off in Kings, things were going really, really well for the people. Do you remember, the book didn't open on such a positive note. The book opens with David, the ideal king, on his deathbed. It's quite jarring for us, because we recognize there are questions to be answered. Who will ascend to the throne after David? Indeed, there is anticipation. God has promised to David that from his line will come a messianic king who will usher in an era of unprecedented prosperity, who will even deliver his people from their greatest enemies. The throne of David's progeny will be established forever. So there's anticipation. There, there are questions. David lies dying. Indeed, he, he had been an ideal king. His, his last words came in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verses 3 through 4. This is what he says. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Indeed, David had ruled justly, and yet as his reign fades, we get a preview of the whole book of Kings. The book of Kings is about the fading glory of the kingdom of Israel. Things seem to be just getting started. Things where we are seem to be going really, really good. Solomon ascends to the throne. The Lord establishes his reign. He even gives Solomon a listening heart so that he might judge and rule over the people justly. And where we last left off, Solomon had completed that task of building a temple in Jerusalem. Indeed, we, we left last on the heels of one of the most raucous and joyful celebrations in the whole Bible. Remember, they're dedicating the temple and Solomon prays that majestic prayer that, that God would hear from heaven, forgive his people their sins. He consecrates the whole courtyard of the temple, turns it into an altar. There are so many sacrifices being made, and these are fellowship offerings where the people would get to eat some of them. It would represent they were in fellowship with God. 
All of it happens at that great feast of tabernacles when the people would reenact the exodus and come and set up sort of pop-up tents for a whole week. This is what we read at the the close of chapter 8. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. This is the high point in the Old Testament. It's almost like life is a dream for the Israelites. And today as we work through our text and we see the Lord God appear to Solomon a second time, we recognize that that dream, even now, when all looks to be going very well, that dream is giving way to a gathering darkness. The main idea this morning as we come to chapter 9 is this. Walk before the Lord, do not turn away. I've given you a bit of an expanded outline this morning. Don't let it intimidate you. Uh, Normally what I would do is hide all of the work from you and just give you those three points on the outside. And you'll be like, oh, this is going to be quick and easy. Uh, But I I thought it would help you to follow me a little bit because we're going to do some work in the text today. Uh, that's a little bit more involved. So you can try to keep up there. Don't be intimidated. Everything's going to look the same. Uh, That probably wasn't comforting for you. At any rate, we're going to pray and and get started this morning. Father, we ask your help that we might hear your word, understand it, and make application of it. I ask that you would make me a conduit through which you would speak, Pray that you would help each one of us to recognize your presence with us here this morning. Don't let us take this gathering for granted. This could be the last time we gather with your people to offer you worship before we die. What a great privilege this is. Help us to honor you as we listen to what you might say to us. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing before we get into chapter 9. You're like, you robbed us of an engaging introduction and just gave us context, and now you want more context? Yes. Uh, Background to all of Kings, something we really need to, to keep in our minds, and what I want you to put in the background of your mind as we work through the text this morning uh, is this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 17. These are God's instructions to the future Israelite kings. This is what he says, Deuteronomy 17, starting with verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord your God has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. 
lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Keep that in mind as we start 1 Kings chapter 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God responds to all of the offerings of the people and to the dedication of the temple by coming to Solomon and reminding Solomon that he has been faithful, which Solomon recounted in his prayer back in chapter 8. He, he says in verse 56 to the Lord, not one word has failed of all of your good promise. Lord has kept his promises to Solomon. The, the temple has been erected. Things are really good. And yet the Lord is appearing here to Solomon a second time to sort of frame Solomon's early ministry for us. He appears the first time at Gibeon. Solomon requests that God would give him a listening heart so that he would rule justly over the people. And now he, the Lord is appearing to Solomon a second time, not to ask Solomon what he might want this time, but to affirm what he has done in Solomon. Indeed, he has granted Solomon his request for a wise and discerning heart. And Solomon has begun to bring prosperity to the people. He has built the house of God in fulfillment of God's word. David could not build it, but Solomon did. God keeps his word. He is blessing the people, and he answers Solomon's prayer. You see that in verse 3. I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God goes above and beyond, even what Solomon asks. He says, not only will I be present there and set up an outpost of heaven in the temple, that in the Holy of Holies, you will be stepping into my throne room by virtue of your union with the great high priest. I will be present among my people. I will live among my people. My eyes and my heart will be among my people. This is an incredible answer to Solomon's prayer. We see over and over again in chapter 8, he asks that God will put his name, that is his presence, in the temple. And that when God's people pray, and even when foreigners pray, that God would hear in heaven. That he would act 
that he would hear and forgive. And the Lord promising to do just that. He's going to put his presence among the people, his very heart, his very eyes. Friends, this should encourage us to pray. It's a pretty simple application. And yet, so often we take prayer for granted. Church, do I need to remind you this morning that God is not obliged to hear prayer from anyone? He, he, He very much could have shut his ears and shut every human being up in hell forever because of our rebellion against him. He created us to worship him. We rebelled against him. He could have said, I am not going to listen to any prayers. I'm not going to save anyone. And he could have good, it would have been good, he could have rightly punished everyone in hell forever. He doesn't have to save anyone. He doesn't have to hear any prayer. And yet, in his kindness, he sent Jesus Christ to take on flesh, to live as a substitute for you and me, a life of perfect obedience to God's word, to die as a substitute, the death that everyone who trusts in him deserves to die. He takes on the cross the wrath of God so that we who trust in him can have the blessing of God. Understand all this stuff going on in, in, in the temple, it, it points forward to Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. That's the problem. Our sinful rebellion against God demands punishment. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice. His blood really does cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness. God really does punish the sins of his people on the cross of Christ. Jesus is the true and eternal high priest who lives to make intercession for his people forever. He secures for us the favor of of God. Jesus is the temple of God. He's the one through whom we come into God's presence. Understand all of this imagery, all these things that are happening are preparing us for the person and work of Jesus Christ. They point us to him. The point of the whole Bible is Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. That's what Paul tells us in Corinthians. If we try to understand everything that God is doing in the Old Testament, divorced from what he has revealed to us in the New Testament, we will make a really big interpretive mistake. God makes promises in the Old Testament, and he keeps all of them in Christ in the new. 
And part of what God is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to dwell among my people in this temple. My name's going to be there. My presence is going to be there. My eyes are going to be there. My heart is going to be there. And do you know what? The people still are somewhat separated from God, offering sacrifices each and, and every day. They're, they're in his presence, but they can only get so close. They can only anticipate the fullness of relationship that will come with Christ Jesus. One of my favorite images in the New Testament is in the book of John when he's talking about Jesus. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you translate that literally uh, from the Greek, it's, it's the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. You understand what John is saying? It, is that God is not just having sort of an outpost of heaven in the temple to dwell among his people. He's actually become one of his people in the person of Jesus. He's living among his people. God comes to us in Jesus Christ so that through Jesus Christ, we can come to him in prayer. You understand, Jesus is how we come into the presence of God. There's one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ in whom we must put all of our faith and trust and hope. Friends, God moves his presence out of the temple in Israel and becomes a man. His presence dwells fully, bodily in Jesus. God the Son became what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was. And he comes to us, he gives his life for us so that we can be in relationship with God. And then he does this next incredible thing. He makes his people his temple. He sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of those who know him as Lord. So that the way the world knows what God is like is no longer looking to a, a temple in Jerusalem. It's by looking to the, the temple of God, the people of God, assembled not in one place, but in thousands of places across the globe. The light of the world shines forth from local assemblies like this one. So that we can say, you want to know what God is like? You want to know what it's like to be in the presence of God? Well, get around his people. Love how Ephesians says it. So then you, this is Jews and Gentiles, you guys are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with all the other saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christian, by virtue of your union with Jesus, you are forgiven your sins, given the favor of God, and indwelt with the presence of God. God the Holy Spirit lives in you and dwells among us uniquely when we gather together Sunday after Sunday. Now, 
What does all of that have to do with 1 Kings? And with this application I'm trying to make about prayer. You remember, we, we left that a long time ago now. You're like, okay, he's coming to a point. Here it is, here it is. If God has loved you like he has in Christ, if he has come to you, not just by virtue of his presence in the temple, but by the person of Christ, and through the person of Christ, come to dwell in you by his Holy Spirit. If he, if he loved you and gave himself for you, do you not think that he's going to hear your prayers? That's my point. I think sometimes we, we, we take prayer for granted. It's the most, one of the most primary parts of the Christian life, and I would argue it's the most neglected. We are not a praying people. And we should be. When we consider the gospel, when we consider what God has done to bring us into relationship with himself, it should prompt us to pray. We, we should never be discouraged and go, God doesn't want to hear from me. We should recognize God has come to earth to save me, to save anybody who puts their faith in Christ. And of course he wants to hear from me. He will hear from heaven. He will forgive. He will hear my prayers and he will act for my good and for his glory. Friends, God answers the prayer of his people. And so here's the simple application, but it's not simple. I, I, pray. And I would challenge you this week, just take, say, I'm going to take 10 minutes every day this week, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to open my Bible to a psalm to help me to pray, because sometimes I don't know how to pray. And I'm just going to pray that psalm, and I might even write it down in a notebook. Pray, God hears and answers prayer. Friends, prayerlessness is faithlessness. God answers prayer. He reminds Solomon that he is faithful to keep his word, to answer prayer. And then he reminds Solomon that he does indeed require faithfulness from his people and from Solomon himself, the king, as he brings up the stipulations of the covenant in verses 4 through 9. Look with me at verse 4. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is pretty simple. God says to Solomon, if you walk before me with wholehearted loyalty, if you walk before me like David did, remember David wasn't perfect, he sinned, but he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind. Saying, so if you walk before me with, with love, you love me above all else, if you are faithful in that Solomon, things are going to go well for you and they're going to go well for your people. It makes sense that God would require wholehearted loyalty from his people. Remember, God is a jealous God. And he should be. He's jealous for that which is his. The affections and faithfulness of his people. You think about it. If a husband does not care if his wife goes out, you know, honky-tonking with other men, 
does not care about his wife. God cares about his people. And he does not put up with them running around with other lovers. He demands faithfulness. And he still demands faithfulness from us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But faith that saves is never alone. It bears fruit. We've seen this week after week when we studied the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls us to himself in dependent faith. He saves us from our sins. And he calls us to pursue holiness by the grace that he provides. He calls us to bear the fruit of faithfulness. To build our house on the rock. To hear and obey his word. Likewise, Solomon here is called to hear and obey. And so we can simply go, yes, we too. We need to live as we have been called. We need to live like children of God. We need to walk in love. That's what Solomon is called to do, to walk out his love for God. And he does this faithfully. He's, he's built the temple. He's brought all kinds of prosperity to Israel. And we see here in verse 25 that three times a year he's offering up the burnt offerings. Right, So he's, he's doing the three major feasts. He's offering the Passover offering. He's offering the Pentecost offering. He's offering uh, the pop-up tent offering, right? The Feast of Tabernacles. He is, he is exercising piety, which confuses us a little bit when we come to the fact that God punishes disloyalty. Because it seems like this warning that God is giving to Solomon is sort of superfluous. Why does this warning come here? The answer is because Solomon needs to hear it, despite all appearances. And we need to hear God's warning, despite all appearances. Listen to what he says to Solomon. If you turn, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and they laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster upon them. It is ominous that we have just heard about the temple's final construction and dedication, and now we are hearing about its potential ruin. We know how this story ends. God is warning Solomon, if you don't walk before me with your whole heart, you and your people, there will be disaster. You see the contrast. If you obey my word, blessing, if you disobey my word, disaster. 
And again, it looks like Solomon is doing really, really well. Why, why this warning? Because as God's people, we get complacent. But we need to hear the warnings of God. No, we hear them in the New Testament too, right? The elect are told over and over again, persevere in the faith until your dying day. Your, the proof of your faith is in the fruit of your life. It's born out over a lifetime. If you are good soil, if you are building your house on the rock, if you are bearing good fruit, you will do that until the very last day of your life. You will not leave Jesus. You will be faithful rather than unfaithful. Some of those warnings that come to us directly, this warning to Solomon makes me consider, one of which is, is Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see what is being said is, if your faith is really saving, you will keep your faith until the end of your life. Be warned. Walk with God. Same thing in Revelation chapter 2. Be more familiar with this one. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, Jesus speaking, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Infidelity to God's word brings the judgment of God. And that judgment of God functions in one of two ways. If we are outside of Christ, it functions as a preview of our eternity, which will be far, far worse. If we are outside of Christ, God's judgment will further harden us against him. That's one way it functions. Another way God's judgment functions is in the life of a believer, wherein it is understood as discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us when we encounter trials and hardship. If we're in Christ, we are to view these things as loving discipline from our heavenly Father. So that perhaps we've gone out of the way like Christian. Maybe we've found ourselves in the land of Doubting Castle, locked up by giant despair. Or perhaps we've wandered into the country, wandered into the country of conceit. Or we've settled down into the land of Vanity Fair. What God's judgment does in the life of a believer, well, it corrects our course. It sets our feet back on the way. Because we are reminded of the need to repent. We are reminded of the goodness of God. We are reminded that He hears our prayers and forgives our sins. These warnings are for our good. 
The Bible warns us about what it means if we are unfaithful to our ever-faithful God. We are to be those who walk humbly with our God because he has saved us. Solomon's warned here, though, if you turn aside from following me, disaster. And that's the end of Solomon's second vision. It's sort of weird. Things are going really, really well. He's told to walk as David walked wholeheartedly before the Lord. And then he's warned, don't turn aside. And then we have verses 10 through 28, which on the, on the face of them, it just looks like Solomon is doing what kings do. He's building up defenses. That's what all the notes about cities are for, all this city building. He's building up his defenses. He's engaging in trade. He's just doing really, he's building political alliances. But when we look underneath the surface of what's going on here, we see again these seeds of worldliness in Solomon. Remember we saw them all the way back in chapter 3 and we've, we've pointed them out as we've worked through Kings. That there is this sense in which Solomon's heart is not pure. The weeds of worldliness are beginning to, to germinate and grow. And by chapter 11, they're going to be in full bloom. Look, look, look at some of these seeds with me. Starting verse 10. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with the cedar and the cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired, King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you've given me, my brother? So they called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Drop down to verse 26. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen, who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents. And they brought it to King Solomon. You see, these seeds of worldliness are beginning to be sown. Remember I told you Deuteronomy 17 mattered. What does Solomon or any king in Israel told not to do. Acquire to themselves excessive silver and gold. Between the, the gold in verse 14 and the gold in verse 28, Solomon gets from Hiram between 20 and 40 tons of gold. It's because his heart is set, not on God, but on riches. It doesn't seem that Solomon is reading the words of the law that he's supposed to be carrying with him. It seems that he's begun to trust in his giftedness as he acquires much gold. And notice the way he acquires the gold. He, he gives away 20 cities in the land of Galilee. He gives away a part of the promised land. There's a reverse 
conquest going on here. It's sort of like Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. He has a part of the promised land for 120 talents of gold. It's not a good exchange. What's even more interesting is perhaps he thought he could do this because these 20 cities don't seem to be as monetarily valuable as the gold that Haram gave to him. You see, Haram calls these cities uh, worthless, is what Kabul means, worthless or nothing. He's sort of like, you gave me zerosville. I gave you 120 talents of gold. And so we have here uh, Solomon not only giving away part of the promised land, but cheating Haram, who sort of stands in for all the nations. Solomon is acting a little bit like an anti-Abraham. One commentator says this, the massive amount of gold, in addition to the other materials supplied, casts Solomon as an anti-Abraham. Not only does he give away the land God has given to him, but he appears to cheat the nations, Haram, rather than bringing them blessing. It is ominous. Solomon's heart is set on gold. Indeed, Deuteronomy 17 tells us his heart shouldn't be set on gold and that he shouldn't return the people to Egypt. And yet, we see over and over again in this chapter and in Solomon's life, his affections beginning to turn towards Egypt. In fact, Solomon begins to look a lot like Pharaoh. Look with me at verse 15. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house in the Milu, in the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazar and Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Bethoron and Balath probably pronounced all of those wrong, and Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. And so the author introduces a number of things that take our minds back to the Exodus. Probably chief among them is is Pharaoh's appearance in verse 16, but we're going to come back to him. What I first want you to recognize is that Solomon is utilizing forced labor and is erecting store cities, just like Pharaoh. The only other time we see this language together in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 11, which says this, Therefore they, that's the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them, that's the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Interestingly, too, the slave labor that Solomon makes use of is comprised of the descendants of people that Israel was supposed to exterminate. I don't want to go into all the ins and outs of holy war right now, but the bottom line is that God was using the nation of Israel as his instrument of justice, and they were to go in and bring his judgment onto the people in the land of Canaan. They were to exterminate them, and they didn't. And so the descendants of those who were supposed to be devoted to destruction there in verse 21 begin to serve as Solomon's slaves. Solomon, instead of completing the conquest, well, he sees an opportunity. God, I don't think that way destroying the people would be best. After all, they could be helpful to my labor force. Even more interestingly, the Israelites are set above them as commanders and, and captains, but it, the author does this really neat thing that we can't see in English. Uh, I really bring up the languages, but it, this is important. The word for slaves, servants, used of the descendants who were left is the same word that's used of the Israelites who are overseeing them. Right? Context dictates how you translate the word. And the author doesn't do this to make us think, oh, I don't know what's going on here. He does it to be deliberately ambiguous. He wants us to, to, to draw this comparison between Pharaoh and Solomon. Are the Israelites enslaved? Right? Well, no, no, they're, they're taskmasters over those people who are enslaved, who are building store cities. All is, is taking us back to the Exodus. And what does he need store cities for? Well, verse 16, chariots and cities for his horsemen. We learn from 2 Chronicles 1 that he is importing these horses and these chariots from Egypt. Again, Deuteronomy 17, only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And yet, Solomon's acquiring many horses from Egypt, and it's no mistake. Look at, at verse 26, where this fleet of ships, where the port is. Do you see it? King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber. I don't know why I say that with an accent. I can't help it which is near Eloth, on the shore of what? The Red Sea. Well, of course, we remember the Israelites, when they come out of Egypt, they, the, the Red Sea splits in two, they walk across on dry ground, and they go to the mountain of God where they receive the Ten Commandments. And then we look at Deuteronomy 17, don't acquire horses, don't go back to Egypt. And, and what is Solomon doing? He's returning the people to Egypt to acquire for himself many horses. And it's, it's not just a trade sort of return, an economic sort of return. I think we're supposed to see that there is a spiritual turn happening in Solomon's heart as well as in the hearts of the people. A turn in their hearts that won't be explicit until chapter 11. 
but it's already happening here. The, the seeds are all there. I mean, you can't get more explicit than this. Did you see this in verse 24? But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Who was Solomon married to? But the daughter of Pharaoh. He is looking a lot like an Egyptian, isn't he? And you can sort of see how the geographical picture in Israel gives us an, a window into Solomon's own heart. Because where is the temple? Well, it's on top of the hill right there. There's the king's house right next to it. And what is, what is off the back side of the king's house right next to the temple? The house of Pharaoh's daughter. The geography gives us a window into Solomon's heart. He's double-hearted. His heart is divided. He, he is in love with an Egyptian princess and maybe the gods of Egypt. And he loves the Lord his God. He's double-hearted. He looks oddly like Pharaoh. That theme is going to continue through 1 Kings. This one's for free. This is just one of the I just love passages like this in the Bible where there's all, all this stuff and you're like, I can't believe this is here. So this is, this is neat. It's going to come up again, but I'm just going to tell you now. So what happens? The, the kingdom is going to get torn away from Solomon. God says, you are an idolater, and so the kingdom is going to be split. And what happens is, is God goes to a guy named Jeroboam and says, you are going to lead my people. You're going to end up leading these northern tribes of Israel. And Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, ascends to the throne, and the people come to him, and they're like, hey, man, you're working us too hard. And so he asks his advisors, what should I do? And they're like, take it easy, man. People will be all right with you if you take it easy. He's like, eh. So he asks some of his friends, you know, the young guys. The young guys are like, no, dude, you got to prove to everybody that you're just as strong as your daddy. And Rehoboam's like, that's good advice. And so he tells the people, my pinky finger is thicker than my father's thigh. Sounds weird to us, but what he was signaling to them was, it's gonna, I'm going to make you work way, way harder. And so there's this sort of visual of the people being under the oppression of Rehoboam, just as they were under the oppression of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And Jeroboam comes and leads a sort of exodus out of Judah into the northern ten tribes. And do you know what he does once he gets up there? He's worried the people are going to return to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so he sets up at Bethel and Dan two golden calves. Isn't that incredible? You sort of have a recapitulation of the Exodus here in Kings. As Solomon turns his heart towards Egypt and Israel begins looking Egypt like itself. They've left Egypt but the sins of Egypt are with them. Solomon's looking a lot like Pharaoh. And then this, this note here in verse 16, just literary genius. Uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer. And then he gives it to Solomon's wife and to Solomon as a gift. Well, what did we just talk about Solomon didn't do and Joshua didn't do and the Israelites didn't do? Well, they didn't destroy all those people who were supposed to be devoted to destruction. Among them, the city of Gezer. Judges 
chapter 1, verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Who is fulfilling God's command to judge the Canaanites in Gezer? Not Solomon. Pharaoh. And so you have this ironic contrast. Solomon is acting a little bit like a Gentile, and Pharaoh is carrying out the will of the one true God. He, he seems to be more a son of Yahweh than his son-in-law. All of this shows us that even though we had hoped Solomon would be the long-awaited Messiah, he is not. He is not the faithful king his people need. There is this sense when you walk away from this chapter where everything looks well, but as I've tried to show you, it's not. Those seeds of worldliness are there. When Chelsea's mother had cancer towards the end there, people would often come up to her and say, Sherry, you look so great. I can't believe you have cancer. And her mom was kind enough, I don't think she ever said this to anybody, but she would say it to Chelsea after the fact. They say that to me, but the truth is, I'm dying. I'm dying. And that's the truth of Israel under Solomon right now. The kingdom is at its zenith. There is gold beyond measure, horses and chariots and political alliances, and it's all so wonderful, it looks good. But inside, death. What about you, Christian? What about your life? Things look real good. You're doing the, the Christian things. Are you ignoring the warnings of God? Is your heart divided? Are there seeds of worldliness springing up in you? Here are three quick applications. I think we have to walk away from this text and resolve to walk before the Lord our God, to not turn away from Him, and to also be aware of the subtlety of sin, because our sin will bring about disaster. You can see there's three things there for you, but I'm going to walk through them. One, look for sin in yourself. Evaluate your motives. Maybe take some time when you're praying this afternoon. But reach into your chest, take out your heart, Turn it over in your hands and look for dark spots. Search under your bed. Look in the corners of your house for dirt and dust. And repent. God hears and forgives. Put your hope in him again. Point number two, look for sin in yourself together with others. Part of the reason we are here together as a church is to help one another follow Jesus. That's why we've promised to follow Jesus together, to hold one another accountable. And so 
it's a really good practice to get together with one of those brothers and sisters in Christ who you've committed to, to follow Jesus together with and to say, hey, here's my heart. Take it out of your chest and hand it to them. Look at my life. Where are my blind spots? Where are sins in me that I can't see? Here, look under my bed. Look at the corners of my house. Is there dirt and dust that I need to get rid of? And if they can find some things, praise God. You've averted some disaster. Repent. Pray. God hears and forgives. Lastly, to avoid the disaster of sin, to motivate yourself to walk before the Lord, look to the faithful king. Look to great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who walked before the Lord God with a complete obedience. He never ceased to do his father's will. Indeed, he is the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 who will crush the head of the serpent. He has crushed the head of the serpent when he died on the cross. And he's coming to put the serpent to death fully and finally when he returns. I mean, that's one of those fun themes in Scripture. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe a lot of extra stuff today, but you'll, you'll appreciate it later. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sin, there is this promise made called the Proto-Evangelion. Evangelion? I'm pronouncing it wrong. First gospel, where God promises that the seed of the woman will save humanity. It tells us about Jesus. And in Scripture, there are, are these subtle themes that there is a war going on between the seed of the woman, the redeemed, the people of God, and the seed of the serpent, those who are of Satan. It's in a bunch of places. But one of the places I want to bring it to your attention is, is in the Exodus and in, in our text. And it's, it's actually sort of on the nose a little bit. Uh, when God saves his people out of Egypt, he says, I'm saving my son out of Egypt, seed of the woman. Jesus is the son of God, the seed of the woman that would save. But, but what is on Pharaoh's crown? You probably, this is common knowledge. He wears this, the big headdress. Do you know what's in the middle of Pharaoh's crown there? It's a rearing serpent, a cobra. You see, one of the things God's doing in the Exodus is showing his supremacy over all of Egypt's gods. Not only over all of Egypt's gods, but over the serpent, that great dragon who would have all of us perish in hell together with him. And though it seems that the serpent is alive and well, even in the heart of God's Messiah, potential Messiah, here in 1 Kings, we know the truth, that the serpent is not victorious, and that Jesus Christ is. Friends, look to Jesus to fight sin. Look to the cross where he crushed the head of the serpent. Look to him there, uh, bloody and battered. Uh, look to him hanging and gasping. Look to him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Look to him crowned with thorns and crying out in pain. 
Look to him, nails through his hands and his feet. Look to him, dead and buried in the grave for three days. Look to our king raised from the dead. Look to him with the keys of death and Hades in his hand. Look to him seated in the throne at God's right hand. Uh, Look to him and remember this is the king who loved you and gave himself for you. This is the king who is promised to return and make all things new. This is the snake crusher, the Messiah. He has freed you from sin. It shall not be your master. Death shall not be the last word. Life will The snake crusher, the Messiah, the true and better Solomon has come. The temple of God in whom we meet God and have peace with God and are reconciled to God has come. The sacrifice who brokers that peace with God by absorbing the wrath of God, he has come. What a king we have. What a love this is. How can it not compel us to follow King Jesus with our whole heart? Jesus, the faithful king, chooses and comes to save and loves Solomons like you and me. It's trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom we are the foremost. He rules the world, and he will save his people. Father, we thank you for your word and your kindness to us. Thank you how you reveal yourself to us in all sorts of ways, but primarily through the illumination you give when the Holy Spirit helps us to understand your word rightly. Lord, what a wonderful book you have given to us. And yet you have revealed yourself to us most perfectly in the person and work of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the word made flesh. We thank you that he, to those who are united to him by faith, he speaks, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood speaks the word of redemption. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, when we put our faith in him, we can know that we will live with him and rise from the dead. We thank you for this good news. We thank you that any who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ can have relationship with you. Indeed, will be indwelt by your Holy Spirit. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.